We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Drafters are not being aggressive enough in 2022. That is what we're going to talk about today on Stealing Bananas. I'm Ben Gretchen from my newsletter, bengretch.substack.com. With me, as always, is Sean Siegel. You can find all of his great work over at Rotoviz. You just wrote up our most recent show where we drafted over on Underdog. You mentioned to me that you just finished writing that up, excited to read through it. You, you had told me that as you wrote it up, got even more excited about it. You're always so optimistic, but you even uh, are excited about the Pat Fryman pick now that I wasn't as thrilled about after the fact. It was my idea, but wasn't as thrilled about after the fact in terms of you know the potential alternatives that we had there as we discussed later in those episodes. But that was a really fun draft. I'm excited to read your breakdown on that. We got a really fun start in that one. Today, we're going to talk about aggressiveness. You pitched this idea to me. I'm not even 100% sure how you're defining the term, and I'm super excited about sort of flying blind. This is going to be one of our kind of conceptual shows. I'm going to be digging in a little bit into what it is you are thinking here because it sounds incredibly intriguing. How are you thinking through aggressive? Because when I said to you just before the show, we talked very briefly, but we thought it'd be better to just talk through it on the show. But I, I was thinking immediately that maybe you were talking about drafters reaching ahead of ADP, which in best ball has become sort of, I think the trend is sort of the opposite where people are really trying to get values and, and build the, the super teams and get players to slip to them and, and learning that when these huge large field tournaments, you got to have the draft fall very favorably to you probably. And so reaching ahead of ADP can take away some of that potential to, to have these huge drafts. And then also to think about certain classes of players, young players, rookie receivers, second year players, the types of players that, that we love to target. I think that would fit very well that a lot of the young players, I thought we were at a point as a community that they were going to be getting pushed up too much. And I think there is some really, really nice ways to play different pockets of positions through youth but let's let's get your definition of aggressiveness in this context well let me start by saying that i I really did enjoy that recent draft with you and i've been writing sort of this dream team series on underdog drafts where i look at 
specific drafts that I've gotten to do with various co-managers that then fit in with the lessons that we've been doing on the site where we have the roster construction explorer, we have the advanced rate explorer, both of those going along with underdog and the advanced rate explorer is really five tools in one. So you can do a lot there, but guys like Connor O'Driscoll and Michael Dubner and Blair Andrews have been doing all of these fantastic lessons. And so I kind of work through them and try and show how those lessons can manifest in real teams. And that part of it is so much fun. And then when you go through and, and, and you really do feel like it's a dream team, I and mean, this roster that you and I have together starts with Jamar Chase, Saquon Barkley, Kyle Pitts, but then has some late round players with extreme upside. And I mean, there have been some unfortunate circumstances even since we drafted that we benefit from. And we talk all the time about how we're not rooting for injuries to any players and it's very sad when they go down because you know you just look at the next 12 months for these guys and the difference between going out and getting to do what you love and, and maybe taking the next step forward in your career and emerging and and so many of these players i mean the the timeline for an nfl career is very short and so I mean, basically people are breaking out or they're collapsing in most cases. Now you have some of the stars who break out early and can maintain for a while before they collapse. But I mean, every year is huge in the NFL. You have players who are in their twenties. I mean, these are young people and the difference between having that breakout season, doing what you love and staring, you know, six to 12 months of rehab in the face. I mean, those are opposite ends of the spectrum. So our hearts go out to anybody who undergoes that, we do talk about drafting knowing that not everybody's going to stay healthy. And so at some point in time, the best players on crowded depth charts are likely to get their chance. And so as we go through different shows and we, we do some of our evergreen shows, you know, more than once because, you know, obviously there are new listeners and there are new things that come up, whether it's, anchor running back and the most recent dream team article was on this sort of extreme anchor running back approach and how all those things fit together you know whether it's zero rb or you know always got to throw in modified zero rb for you know all of the the people who love slash hate that but we're also looking at new trends and different types of things that come up and sort of how this popped into my head was i was thinking about um and this probably sounds strange but potential tweets uh, even though that's not something that I do. And I'm thinking about this conceptually that drafters have gotten so much more aggressive in the last five years in a wide variety of areas. And we talk a lot about how there are, are fewer clear-cut exploitable advantages now. And you had a very nice recent Stealing Signals post where you talked about how the exploitable opportunities are smaller than ever and contingency-based drafting and thinking through player valuations through this contingency-based lens is very important because really fantasy football comes down to being able to envision scenarios and then accurately price those scenarios, knowing that in any short-term context, you could end up looking very wrong because not all of those scenarios are going to play out. And if you have priced things in a certain way and some lesser outcomes hit, 
and or people stay healthy for a long period of time to start a season, all of those types of things, then maybe you're not going to look like you know what you're talking about. You're not going to look right. But as we go through a full season, as we go through multiple seasons, then you're going to come out way ahead. Again, if you're good at envisioning the scenarios and pricing them correctly, which is sort of the other part of that. And it's one of the reasons that I talk about it's not that I don't want to be diversified with the portfolio of players because you know you don't want to be at 100% on somebody. I mean, it, and it depends too kind of where you are because the cost versus the leverage, if you're very high on a 17th, 18th round guy is going to be different than if you're very high on someone in round five, round six. Obviously, we were very high on KJ Hamler last year, had a lot of exposure to him, not ideal when he gets hurt early on, but different than if it had been around five or six guy. I mean, you can weather some of those things late in a different way. And if you hit, you know, then you crush across a wide swath of leagues because you have those guys. But one of the reasons why I'm not trying to just get good prices on everyone is that I still strongly believe that even though ADP is better and tighter and more representative of scenarios as opposed to projections that really heavily weight week one. And you and I have talked about the pitfalls of projections. We're hoping to have sort of a epilogue or, you know, post cap sort of projections show. Uh, once you finish your projections here, you're just on the very last couple of teams. I think it'll be interesting to talk that through that with you once you've finished the exercise, but ADP is getting tighter. And yet I think that when we talk about scenarios and pricing those scenarios, there are still going to be a lot of players out there who are not priced correctly. And I do think that we want to be heavily overweight on those guys. You mentioned in the intro that there are a handful of these sort of broad case types of categories where drafters are are considered to be more aggressive if they're targeting players from those groups. I think that we see the prices on those players go up. And one of the things that's kind of interesting would be that some of the zero RB candidates that are just so clear and would have been priced in round 10, two or three years ago, are now priced in round seven and eight, which is actually a pretty big difference structurally. And yet there are a lot of different elements within these drafts where the pricing doesn't seem tight enough yet. Connor had a cool article out recently talking about how is the second year wide receiver value gap gone because receivers are a little bit more expensive, but they're just a little bit more expensive. And we know that they've been vastly undervalued in the past. Another category that I think is interesting is the dead zone. And the dead zone is interesting and controversial because you can look at it from a couple of different perspectives, right? If we actually were not seeing much difference in the trends, then we'd be like, well, people are not really reacting to or receptive of this information. Drafters are making the same mistakes. They still don't understand the dead zone. But now that it appears that drafters do understand the dead zone, the flip side of that is, well, shouldn't drafters be now adjusting to that and putting together some dead zone centric teams? So my thought would be, 
can we stack some of these at least perceived advantages if the advantages are still there? And what kinds of interesting super teams might we get if we're looking at young players, both first and second year, if we're looking at talented players, if we're looking at dead zone players, if we're looking at, as you mentioned earlier, reaching. So my question for you would be, are there elements of a lot of the different themes that we've discussed that have at least some overlap with this idea of sort of overall draft aggressiveness? And if we put them together in one basket or one approach, if we tried to execute all of them in not necessarily every draft, but in most drafts, would we get teams that look different than what most of the teams still are? And would that then force another shift in either ADP or structure? Obviously, those things play off of each other. Would we still see drafts that are very different? Because one of the things, and one of the reasons why I wonder, you know, if drafts are aggressive enough, is that things have changed a lot. And yet, if you go participate in an OT listener league draft, it's going to be a lot more difficult to execute what you want and find value than if you're in a normal draft. If you go participate in a ship chasing draft, same thing. Right. And to an extent, you have this idea of, okay, well, maybe there is an echo chamber. <laughs> maybe all of these drafters are forcing each other into some suboptimal decisions. And really, it's just some cascade effects. That's not something that you could just kind of take back into another league and say, you know, look, these drafts maybe are not aggressive enough. But I'm not sure that that's true. Right. And when you, you look at overall ADP and you're like, man, this looks a lot tougher and a lot tighter than it was two years ago, definitely than five years ago. But then if you look at the rosters that are actually the way that you would do it and compare them to the other rosters within your league, it seems to me like most of the other rosters are not nearly as aggressive as what we recommend. And if we saw that aggressiveness, again, you, you'd be looking at a very different overall draft context and draft environment than what we're seeing in 2022. A lot of really interesting stuff. There. And I think it sounds to me like you're talking about building teams that would also be very different than what we could have built in 2021 or in 2020 or in 2019 and going back when a lot of these things, maybe these opportunities didn't present themselves. So I had a lot of thoughts. I'm sure the listeners did too, in terms of what you're actually referring to. So, yeah, we, we often uh, save some of the player-specific stuff for the second show when we get into these big topics. I mean, you were talking about some of the young players and, and dead zone and like immediately like Elijah Mitchell and Antonio Gibson popped into my mind. When you were talking about some of the... And I, I've wavered on what to do with those guys because I do think they're cheaper than they ever would have been this year. And yet I still don't know that I love them and I've... I've continue to be pretty concerned about their placement in the dead zone, even if it's in the back half of the dead zone. I think it's clear the drafters are not buying into them. Maybe in prior years, they'd be fourth round picks. Now they're sixth round picks or something to that effect, um, you know, in sharper leagues. Still don't know if I want to take them in the sixth. It's, a, it's an interesting question. 
the the you thing is really interesting to me. So there's been a lot of shifts. You talked about the contingency-based article that I wrote recently. One of the big elements of that has been, I think, sort of this idea of targeting some of the offenses. Even if you have to project players, it's okay. But the, there's upside here. You know, Gabriel Davis is a very popular one. Like, don't necessarily know what's going to happen with the Bills, but there is the potential for Gabriel Davis to have an incredible season because we do know that the Bills are probably going to pass a lot, assuming Brian Dable doesn't take that with him when he goes to the Giants. But not much further behind Davis, you get into that range where, you know, Alan Lazard and Christian Kirk go because they're the number ones for their offenses and probably aren't elite talents. And so as you were talking about these different pockets and these abilities to potentially hit on certain types of talents, the fact that, you know, Traylon Burks and Sky Moore and Garrett Wilson go after those types of players, I think, was certainly one of the ones that popped out to me in terms of trying to build this this type of team. Well, there's that range of wide receiver, you know, Hunter Renfro is going in. When you talk about not being aggressive enough, I think the drafters are probably making a mistake to take that type of player and Christian Kirk over Burks. Given what we know about rookie receivers over the last couple of years, we just saw it not just with Chase last year, but with Justin Jefferson the year before, who's a better example because Jefferson wasn't Jamar Chase as a prospect. To put this simply, in dynasty drafts, he was more like a later first-round pick. Maybe he was going 108 in some drafts. He was sort of viewed as interchangeable to Jalen Rager, who ended up not hitting. And then in redraft, was a 9th, 10th, 11th round pick at times as a rookie, Jefferson. And he came out and had an incredible, incredible rookie year. I mean, like the way that the dynasty community has treated guys like Traylon Burks has been more favorable, I would argue, than than the way they viewed Justin Jefferson in the offseason of his rookie year. His ADP still probably a little higher than where Justin Jefferson was going that year. And yet people are just like, he's not, you know, he's not that, you know, and he's definitely he's definitely not Debo, even though, you know, people have made that type of comparison. He can't be as good as Debo like the biggest thing that we know about rookies is that there's a lot of uncertainty. And and the biggest thing that we've learned in these last couple of years is that sometimes that uncertainty means that they're, these players are a lot better and they get into systems right away where that's that skill set shines really quickly in a way that we don't necessarily do a very good job of projecting. I mean, even Almond Ross St. Brown had, had some strong target earning potential in college at USC and comes to the lions and, and isn't really doing a lot in the early part of the year. And then late in the year, we see him, put up, you know, six straight games with target shares that are, I think it was, you know, 29% or higher, like these 30% target share games that are just absurd, you know, and he shows this, you know, elite target earning potential for a period that includes the fantasy playoffs and several people won their leagues, you know, riding, riding what he was able to do. We've learned this lesson a lot of times, but people don't necessarily want to learn it this year. And so that's one pocket you're talking about different pockets in different ways i i am still really curious what you were alluding to but those are the ones that are popping into my head the rookie receivers that we've talked a lot about but then you're mentioning the dead zone playing the dead zone differently talking about young players i I have to feel like you're talking about like the elijah mitchells of the world talk me and the listeners through what the hell you meant (laughs) well the dead zone can be tricky because it, it does mean some different things to different people but one of the things that we saw again in our pros versus joe's draft the other night was that running back 
was very heavy through the 302 and then the tap just completely shut off. And I think that you still have to look at the individual players and the individual players are interesting to me from the perspective of how do we mesh our personal boards with what we know works structurally and are there ways to be aggressive both in terms of actually playing to our own rankings a little bit more but then also are there builds that we can execute where it would actually be structurally sound from our own rankings it's not from where the players actually go but you can use that to then build this super team that you were talking about earlier because from your own board you essentially have executed the structure plus you had an extra couple of picks in the first five rounds and that's one of the things that we talk about it's you don't actually have a couple of extra picks but the players are still not actually valued properly when you look at how talented is this player and make that judgment based on this combination of past production and the parts of athleticism that translate for that particular position, right? I think that sometimes people are, are very skeptical about or unwilling to make very strong claims to player talent. And I guess I still think that that's pretty exploitable. And I think that if anything, becoming a little bit more agnostic for a time after I stopped, started working heavily in the industry actively made me worse at fantasy. And one of the things that you always want to make sure that you do is keep evaluating yourself for areas where maybe you're learning the wrong lessons. I wrote about this recently. When I started fantasy, I felt that I got worse for the, for very similar reasons. And it, I mean, it's interesting that that would happen, right? Because you think yeah. you're gaining all of this information. And it, it's certainly not the only reason that, you know, I'm not on Twitter, for example. But one of the things that people will get crit uh, criticized for from time to time, sites will get criticized for, people are somewhat looking to avoid is this echo chamber element or just not having a lot of exposure to outside ideas. And I certainly feel like I've gotten a, just that my results have skyrocketed again, sort of post Twitter, because I'm mostly trying to be right for myself. And that spills over to our readers and listeners, but I'm focusing on my own process and my own player evaluations to win my own leagues. And those are not getting watered down by having exposure to a lot of other people's ideas. And it doesn't mean that I don't have respect for the people in the industry, because one of the reasons why the ideas would get watered down is because you do have respect for other people and know that they are very good at what they do. But that doesn't necessarily mean that incorporating some of what they do into your own process is going to make you personally better with it. Now, I mean, obviously I, I get, you know, lots of interaction with you, lots of interaction with uh, just the fantastic minds at Rotoviz. So I'm not like operating as some one man show by any stretch of the imagination. And even just, you know, working with 
all of the great tools and having your ADP tools pull up and all that. I mean, there's a ton of outside information that still gets in, but just limiting that a little bit has been helpful. And I, I, I'm sure there are some people who are very, very, very good at not caring what other people think and not like wanting to be right. And, and the, the main thing that I find for myself in terms of wanting to be right is not so that people will like say, oh, Sean was right about this, but because I want the people who listen to me and, and read Rotoviz to benefit and to succeed and win. And so you want to be right and not wrong, not you know for your personal glory, but because you care about your community. Sometimes that makes you worse instead of better. So I, I kind of mentioned that stuff to bring it back around to this idea that I do feel very strongly that not all of these players are the same skill level and the same kind of combination of talent and skill, which are, I mean, they're two different things, but they work together to manifest as a certain player level in the NFL. People wouldn't say that the players are all the same, right? I mean, obviously the player being drafted in round 16 is rarely viewed as similar to the player drafted in round three. But I think we're still too far along in the direction of believing that depth charts and workloads are going to determine not only the prices, but also the upside and the potential and like the windows of value. One of the things that I've thought was somewhat interesting as we go through a lot of these drafts now where drafters do realize, okay, in, in best ball, for example, you're going to need a ton of wide receivers to really make any kind of build work. It's going to be different depending on the build. But so there's so much depth at the wide receiver position and you do have these number two wide receivers in bad offenses where the receiver himself has not really demonstrated anything. It wasn't necessarily a good college player. And the fact that they're sort of number two on the depth chart here in the double digit rounds makes them interesting because the volume has to go somewhere. One of the things we talk about all the time is that it tends to go somewhere else if the player isn't good enough. And I think those things are still exploitable early, middle, and late. And that you're, if you're aggressively targeting the best players and then layering in a little bit of that sense of what the best offenses are, then you do come out ahead and that sometimes there are going to be these situations where perhaps you want to reach. Now, I, I do think it's very effective if you can hit these guys that you think are undervalued by 15 picks. If you can hit them five picks below ADP, that's also great because then again, you build these super teams that you're talking about. But I do think it's a, a big picture element as well where we don't simply want to go into a draft and try and figure out the best value at the individual pick. We need to know sort of this, the whole tapestry. And if there are things that we can do to create a team that's even better than if we had just focused on ADP. So for example, getting back to the dead zone, you mentioned Elijah Mitchell, Antonio Gibson. Those guys for me are tricky because their teams have indicated very strongly that they don't believe those guys are big time talents and that the split will be 
not favorable for a back to have really even a top 10 ADP. And I, I do think there are situations where you have teams where two backs should be up there, like Aaron Jones and AJ Dillon. Now, I'm a little bit skeptical on the prices of both of those guys, but they do fit what we're talking about in terms of explosive offense and big time talents. You look at Washington, you look at the 49ers, you're probably on the other end of the spectrum, at least in terms of the talent at the running back position there. But and these are guys that we've talked about, but you look at early in the dead zone and you look at Travis Etienne and Brees Hall and J.K. Dobbins. Now, granted, there are injury things and there are inexperienced things tied up in that. But we do have a group of players here where it's a big difference between going in late three to late five, early six and going in round two. Well, one of the things that we saw in 2021 was that round two running backs had elite win rates, and that was the build that worked, whether you went running back, running back, or you went wide receiver running back. That was the build that worked. I do think there's a chasing that element, and obviously history matters. And one of the reasons why we use the roster construction explorers, one of the reasons that we use data in the first place and use evidence is that it does inform what we expect to happen going forward. But we also know that the past isn't going to perfectly tell just what happened in the previous year, that there are larger trends that are going on. And so if we have talented young players who are being discounted by more than that, and then the structure is pushing them down, I think that there's sort of a double element here where the drafters who would be sort of most predisposed to take the young players are also the ones who are emphasizing structure the most. And so you get the players pushed down because the exact type of personality that would be most interested in them is also fading them for different reasons. And so if you're looking at players who are double faded, then I mean, you, you have to at least consider attacking that. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hayden Winks did really good work on that over at Underdog this offseason where he showed the types of receivers and running backs that zero RB drafters versus you know heavy RB drafters 
drafted it, and it was very interesting, the splits on certain players. It was exactly what you would expect, what you just described. There was data, you know. It was right there in the, in the evidence. It was uh, – and it was funny even with, like, Kadarius Tony, for example. The running back heavy early drafters were more likely to because he wasn't the analytical profile necessarily that Rotovizian thinking uh, – would have would have loved and so he actually was a flip even as a young player he went more towards the other type of drafter and so that that phenomenon definitely exists there was so much this has been my favorite episode of the year there was so much there that i that i sort of i guess needed to hear i think readers of stealing signals will know that a lot of what you just said has been similar to what i've felt i literally just wrote recently about uh what you're talking about about coming into the industry and, and not necessarily doing as well in my own leagues and trying to take in too much information you mentioned that there's still information that gets in i think filtering that is such an important thing obviously and that's that's a skill that you develop and that's something that is very important but trying to limit i get asked a lot about there's a lot more advanced stats that you know maybe stealing signals at one point earlier when I was writing it was viewed as a little bit more cutting edge on some of the advanced stuff and now there's more advanced stuff and I don't necessarily get into all of it. I get asked about that a lot, and you know I tried to address that a little bit this offseason and talked about how I want to know before I start incorporating a new stat that it is definitely moving the needle that it's not just sort of a coin flip that there's not just like high profile hits but then we're kind of ignoring the high profile misses that happens with a lot of things and that the stats that I am incorporating understanding how they interact and how they're compiled even if they don't have as big of an R squared as some other stat I feel like the unexplained variance beyond that R squared is stuff that I can control for because I know I mean with respect to like targets per out run everything that relates to a dot and efficiency after the target and all that that's a lot less predictable and i can control for that after i look at the targets per out run i know that you know the keenan allen and jarvis landry type needs a much more elite targets per out run because i'm controlling after the fact for the fact that they have lower lower a dot targets not tons of size don't tend to have high td rates don't tend to generate a ton of yak either as compared to you know let's just use aj brown because why wouldn't i use aj brown all roads lead to aj brown He's a player who has a high A dot or or has at times had a high A dot, also generates yak at all depths, is basically just the greatest receiver that ever lived. So there's a different bar, you know, bar that he's going to need to clear on the targets per out run side. But what I'm trying to control for is very specific. How many targets does this player earn in the role that they play and who the player is per the routes that they're running? And then I'll deal with everything else later. And there are a lot of, you know, additional elements, obviously, to how that comes out. But, I mean, there's so much that you said that the most interesting was this element of, you know, drafting with some hubris. Drafting with the uh, the willingness to stand behind your player takes. The willingness to say that these are the players that I think are good at football is becoming less in vogue. And, and particularly as you broke apart the two different groups i think within our group that where where we're where we're drafting i think you know the group that in the fans community sometimes gets referred to as the boomers or whatever that are more willing to be more running back heavy they're willing to take their stance the more you know newer aged type fantasy drafter i think is more inclined to admit that it's difficult to to judge talent but then let that seep in so much that you talk about building those super rosters 
And you, you talked in, in recent shows about feeling good about the teams that you draft. We feel really good about that underdog team we drafted because we started with Jamar Chase, Saquon Barkley, and Kyle Pitts. And it's not particularly hard to think about how Jamar Chase, Saquon Barkley, and Kyle Pitts could be superstars. They athletically and production profile back to college and anytime they've been healthy on, on NFL fields. I mean, in, in Barkley's case and certainly in Chase and Pitts' case in their one year, have been nothing but what you would expect out of a superstar flat out at their age adjusted numbers for, for, for chasing pits, just incredible for Barkley. Anytime the dude's actually been a hundred percent, he's been a star. Uh, we saw it even last year. It was, he didn't even play full snaps in week one, week two, he kind of got back to full snaps. Didn't have a great game week three and four. He had boom, two big games. And then he rolls his ankle week five, misses time, comes back, never plays big snaps again. Never really looks explosive again. But we saw those two games that it was like, okay, yeah, Saquon Barkley is still really good at football. And that's how I feel about Christian McCaffrey as well. When we've seen him, you know, I talk about the declining skills of guys like Ezekiel Elliott and things, and then I have gotten questions about, you know, Christian McCaffrey. Well, he's been injured for two straight years. He's been down. His production's been down. Well, when he's been on the field, when he's played, he still looked like Christian McCaffrey. We haven't had any reason to believe that he's been worse. In fact, last year he was blowing away some metrics. His target sprout run, for example, was suddenly – better than the best receivers, very small sample, but like he was getting out into routes and looking like unguardable. I mean, he might be finding a new gear or he looked like he was potentially. Um, his TD rate was actually down, but his, he was still very, very productive on a per healthy game basis last year. He had a couple of injured games, but this whole conversation, I mean, for all the research we do and all, all the analysis we do and all of the complex stats that come out and all the ways that you can cut projections, right? You can cut coaching trends and, and, and all of those things. Typically the superstars are the superstars, right? I mean, it's, it, it, and there's an element of that, that very casual fantasy players know and, and get right. Sometimes I've played in home leagues and gotten my butt kicked by people who don't know anything about fantasy football, but they know enough about football generally. Like I remember this guy last year, this guy, I was, I watched a lot of football last year and this guy was really good at football. I'm drafting him two rounds early and then he's a superstar. And that's not a, it's not a strategy necessarily that you can, you know, lay out and, and, and have hours and hours of content about, but Sometimes you just got to, you know, take the guy I, I, on. It reminds me last year on ship chasing when we had the, the running joke for our draft that me and, and, and Pat Crane and Pete Overzet, my, my two co-hosts, and we did a draft with Mike Leone last year at the NFC 5K buy-in league. And we took Jamar Chase because he was, you know, Leone called him an alpha play. And it was take, take the, take the alpha play sometimes, you know, Jamar Chase, maybe this guy is just the guy you need. And we ended up, Winning that league, I mean, things went very fortunate. But it is uh, th this whole conversation. The, the reason I said is like what I needed to hear, and it was so so fun to 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 listen to and to talk to you is is just this distillation of a willingness to set aside all of the information. You know, I talked to somebody who's a listener who really liked our auction shows. Uh, several of you did, and we really appreciate all that great feedback. So glad to hear that that was so you know helpful to those of you who play in auction leagues. I talked to one for a while, and and he had done some awesome prep work, built a bunch of spreadsheets, uh, done a lot of you know customized 
value building, like we talked about on the show, thought through different ways that, you know, based on those projected values could potentially build out a roster with flexibility for different, you know, potential trends within, within his individual auction. One of the things I told him is when I do auctions, I've tried them that way and I find it tough to be updating a complex Excel spreadsheet while doing the auction because I'm, I'm changing my budgets at my different positions. I'm, I'm entering in how much each player went for and, and, and trying to allow uh, create formulas that will allow for the adjustment of how much money I have available to spend at different spots and all of those things. The simple fact of looking up the player and entering in the information and those types of things causes me to miss often the very brief window at the start of the next nomination where since as I've changed my process and simplified it, I'm using that window to say, do I want to bid on this player? How close to my number do I want to get really early in the nomination process? And then I'm, I'm playing the room like a poker table. I'm playing, is this starting out slow? Are people pushing aggressively at this? And so for each player, rather than going and trying to update some type of spreadsheet or something, what I have learned helps me come away from auctions better is to try to keep all of that in my head and instead print out a cheat sheet, which Stealing Signals subscribers won't know. I did my rankings last year in a Google Doc, just a few columns of rankings tiered. It looks just like that. One sheet. I have one column that's, you know, I have a really small font. One column is quarterbacks and tight ends. The other one's running back. The other one's receivers. Three columns. I used to do it in Microsoft Word when I was you know, 16. And then I stopped doing that. I started getting too complex. And then I got back to it. That's what that's how I like to draft. Get all my research done. Get my tiers where I want them, print that out. And that is the, basically, it's very boomer. It's very old school, but just have that in front of me. When I do an auction, I especially like it this way. I keep all the values, obviously, or add all the values to the sheet. I'm crossing off as players are nominated. I can see on that sheet, how many players have been nominated from each tier at each position. It gives me that information, but I'm not really making a note of how much people are going for or anything like that. That is all internal. I'm, I'm making the note as I'm crossing the player off and watching the bidding go. But the reason is that I don't want to be so focused on all of the information and trying to do last minute. I mean, everyone has probably felt at some point in a fantasy draft where they're like doing a last minute check to see if the player was injured or something. When I'm doing the draft, any kind of fast draft or auction or anything that I feel I need to be engaged in, I want to be engaged. I want my research to be done and I want to be essentially 100% focused on the strategy of the draft and playing it out and what players I actually want to be taking and when and why, or else inevitably, if I'm trying to do too many things, at least one or two picks or one or two bids in the auction or whatever are not going to go the way that I might've been if I would have been more engaged. And the whole point I was trying to make there was just this idea of simplifying, trusting all of the past analysis, not, not overcomplicating you know, having a plan going in, but not overcomplicating necessarily the, the various layers you have put into, you know, the research before your draft. But then when you're at your draft or where you're at your auction, you are engaged basically solely in that auction and you know what your plan is and you trust it and you're, you know, confident enough. Again, it's this idea of hubris. Like there's, there's nothing out there that I might need to know and sometimes I can bite you. Maybe there is a preseason game going on and an injury happens. Like that's a pretty rare thing, I think, for how much energy you probably spend trying to check that during a draft. But 
you know, that's why I like tiered rankings. We were talking about having these players that we really like. I often talk about, I, I always do tiered rankings. Listeners from last year will remember this. I'll have my tiered rankings on, on stealing signals soon, but I often have players that are a tier higher than where they're going in drafts. They're in a tier with a group of players. And, and you've talked about this, obviously, with your rankings, which I don't, I guess they are tiered this year, right? But like last year, when you had T. Higgins in the second round, same concept. It's like, you don't necessarily need to take him in the second round, but you're putting him as a class of player with players that he's not typically drafted around. And that takeaway is fairly simple, is that you'd be happy to take T. Higgins anywhere after that point, which is long before he actually tends to go. And so now it's just a question of what's the best price you can get on him. But in certain scenarios, if you're on the edge of a draft and you don't think he's going to come all the way down and back and you don't think there's a lot of comparable players and your exposures are not you know, a key consideration here, you might just take him 20 picks before ADP because you're pretty sure he's not going to make it a 24 back to you or 15 picks before ADP or whatever. And it's that same sort of philosophy and concept, I think, that the pre- the preparation and all of that is is very important. But you know, using tiered rankings and, and, and getting players into tiers that you see this guy, for me, is in this group with these players, even though he doesn't get drafted there. That's a target, right? And this guy, I don't want in this tier with these players, even though he typically gets drafted there. That's a pretty clear fate. That guy's going to have to be falling into the next tier. And even then... Just because he falls around in my snake draft doesn't mean I'm necessarily going to take him because I have him tiered with those guys down there. And maybe there's still five players in that tier available. I don't really think he's worth the the round higher. So why would I, you know, if I didn't love, certainly didn't love taking him around higher, I don't necessarily even love taking him around lower when he's fallen beyond, you know, past ADP. I think it saves you from those types of picks too. And those are some of the types of picks that, you know, we talked about again on recent shows where if you're not enjoying your team when you're done with your draft, probably part of it is that you drafted a few players like that. You're like, well, I had to take this guy. He's been on the board. He's been a top available player for three rounds now. I, I felt like I had to take him. And then you look back on it and that's the pick that you're like, eh, don't really, I'm not really all that excited about that player. Like no one's forcing you to take, to take the value necessarily is the point that I'm making. It can be very useful in times and in spots where there's players that, hey, if he falls, I'll take him. But I think it's important to think through which players, if he falls, you'll take, or if they fall, you won't take. Sometimes I'll I'll rank players three tiers lower than where they're going because I'm straight up saying, like, this is just not – this is where I would take them. <laughs> it's not somebody that I'm likely to take even if they fall. It's not how I'm playing that team or that situation. It doesn't necessarily mean that I think that I'm certain to be right, but it is – a willingness to take a stand and, and be a little bit hubristic. Right. And so anyway, that was the biggest thing from everything you said. Now I've gone very long on that point, but that I think is, it's really good advice. I mean, it's really good advice in the modern era where that's how fantasy used to be played and analysis started. And we got better about picking out spots where we couldn't just say, Oh, this is an alpha play. This guy's so good because, Oh yeah, there's regression. There are these issues, all of that. And yet in corners of the fantasy industry, for sure, that type of analysis has now taken so hold, that's taken such a hold that, you know, you miss the the, the very basic element. I don't know if the force for the trees is the right phrase here, but you, you miss the fact that the player is very, very good. I like the way that you describe that there and having a little bit of hubris we'll see what the feedback is in terms of the show and if we have 
explained what we mean going through these concepts. But I feel like fantasy drafts are like so many other things. And I know people obviously don't come to (laughs) Stealing Bananas for life lessons. And I would definitely say that I'm trying to do with life is is just learn and, and get better at it. But I do think that there's this element within a fantasy draft where you want to be patient yet aggressive. And in, in terms of like learning to play tennis better and to coach tennis better and to go from being someone who really underperformed what I felt like my skill level was for a long time and then at least it feels to me a little bit more like recently flipped that to where actually beating some people who perhaps are actually playing a little better tennis than I am. There's that same type of element of patient yet aggressive and, and where do you need to be patient and where do you need to be aggressive? We talk so much about humility-based drafting. And so then to layer on this concept of, well, you need to have confidence in the choices that you're making can be tricky. But I think that one of the things that we're looking to do is figure out how can we supercharge our structural builds? And it's not just by hitting the structure properly, it's by creating as much exposure to league winning players and breakout players as possible. And so as I listen to you in your explanation there, there are kind of four little parts that that jump out to me in terms of trying to think through it for myself and explain it to myself. And one of the first ones that kind of pops up is just this idea that people would throw out from time to time. And in some cases, I think it was supposed to be sort of, you know, gently mocking or maybe every once in a while, just completely mocking zero RB, which obviously is perfectly fine. Um, But this idea of zero bad players, right? And I agree with that. 100%. 100%. No one's going to ever get me to criticize zero bad players as a draft philosophy. And I think that in many cases, that's what we're trying to do with zero RB is to make sure that we are actually drafting zero bad players. And so every once in a while, when I see wide receiver heavy teams where I'm just like, you got a lot of wide receivers, but I think that they're the lowest ceiling wide receivers from each kind of ADP level that you drafted from. It's like, that's not exactly... I mean, maybe it'll work because I'm obviously not right all the time. I mean, I think that's very clear. But it's it's not the way that I would prefer the drafters go after that. And if you're drafting some teams that you feel like are not as exciting, don't outperform in the way you want, again, make sure you're actually going after the wide receivers who really have that upside. And then as you go all the way through the draft, don't draft a bad player just because he falls to you at an ADP that works. His volume is going to get taken by someone else on his team as the year progresses, even if it looks like he's going to get it when the year starts. And so that kind of feeds into the second point that popped into my head or just as I was trying to distill what you were saying, which is that bad picks in a draft, I think come in many cases from trying to make value plays and They result when a player or a couple of players right before your selection that you wanted get taken. And then suddenly the value picks aren't there 
probably the next player in your own rankings is actually a very good selection in that range, but their ADP is enough lower that you're like, well, there are these five guys in between and I don't have a lot of exposure. Should I get some exposure to these guys? You make that pick and then you have all of these consequences that just cascade down to the rest of your draft because you've taken someone who isn't a good enough player is not someone that you had as a pick in your rankings and it's often not just the one pick but you made the bad pick because you were trying to get value as opposed to trying to draft this super team which when you can think of the super team is okay i'm going to get i'm, I'm going to have this perfect run where the other drafters don't exactly know what they're doing, or at least the three or four who are kind of closest to me, they're going to let these values fall to me over and over and over in the draft. It's going to be a super team that way. Yeah, I mean, if you if you draft 100 teams or 200 teams, you're going to have three or four that come out very, very favorably relative to ADP. And if they also have some of your player targets, you feel good about those. I don't wouldn't guess that that many listeners to stealing bananas have the time and the money and like it doesn't make sense within what you're doing to draft a hundred teams in order to get three or four that you like if you do that's awesome you and i are drafting a lot of teams we enjoy that process but i want to maximize the number of teams within that hundred or 200 or 300 or five i want to maximize the number that i really like we talked about that being draft fun players, but the fun comes from putting together a team that has the upside plays that you believe in for that season. The next thing for me there is that when we're looking at value versus looking at upside versus looking at, okay, this is a team that I think could go out and win the $2 million on underdog or win the $1 million in the FFPC main event. I mean, to do that, you're going to have to draft the perfect team. But to draft the perfect team and to give yourself the best chance and to feel good about it, you're going to need to create enough exposure to the players you really love. That's actually harder than creating enough exposure to the players that you're not that high on, but you're like, well, maybe I'll be wrong. And so I, I want to make sure I get a little bit of this guy, this guy, and a little bit of this guy in case I'm not right. You can do that. I don't know that you need to do that, but creating enough exposure to a Jamar Chase is much more difficult. And, th and talking about Jamar Chase 2021, obviously if you have a top five pick in 2022, you create some exposure and that's kind of your chance. Make sure you focus on creating enough exposure to the breakout plays much more than you focus on creating enough exposure to players. You just don't want to be sitting there at the end of the year saying, oh, you know, I was wrong about this guy, but I had a, two or three chances to draft him and didn't take it. I mean, that's not going to be the part that you sit back at the end of the year criticizing yourself for. Now, you may be mad that you just weren't right, but you're not going to be like, oh, I, you know, I had that two, those two teams I could have drafted him on. And then the final thing is just, again, looking at players at different price levels and wanting to make sure you're targeting the player with the widest range of outcomes as long as you believe the entire group of outcomes are being priced properly. And again, part of this is just gonna go back to your own rankings and your own projections and your own player evaluations. But I wanna put that caveat on the end because even within this idea of take 
the player with the wide range of outcomes, there are going to be three, four, five players in any season where you look at a very exciting player with a wide range of outcomes and you're just like, the price basically just based on his ceiling outcome. So just because he has a wide range of outcomes doesn't mean I load up on that guy because they're only pricing the one outcome that doesn't leave you any room to beat it. On the flip side, you'll every once in a while see a veteran where you're like, this guy is priced just on his floor. And so even though it's a veteran, even though you know maybe the range of outcomes isn't that wide, there is still some range. I mean, all of these players have a range. Football is so chaotic. You're going to have a range for the various players. If you have a veteran that is priced only at his floor, you're going to get a little bit of exposure. But outside of those extremes, we want the guys with the wide ranges, specifically players that we believe in the talent level, and building teams that focus on those guys are going to be the most aggressive teams you layer in the structure and you figure out ways where maybe in your particular season, the structure is a little bit exploitable because people are chasing too much the previous year. That's where I think you find the aggressiveness. And that's where I think you find the super teams. And I like the, I mean, I liked all of those thoughts. I like the point that you have to be willing to miss. You know, it was tough for me last year not having as much Cooper Cup as I wanted. I was really happy to hear from several people that some of of my thoughts on him in various things that I wrote about his targets per run and some of these things talked about some of his upside. And and there were like a handful of people that credited me with getting them on Cooper Cup, which I thought was very interesting because I didn't draft a ton. I took a, you know, I took Cooper Cup on a few teams, but. I was so heavy on DJ Moore in that range, but I didn't feel like I've had a really hard time, I guess, with the Cooper Cup thing because I didn't it didn't really bother me that much to not have more Cooper Cup. I mean, it was obviously something that would have helped all of my teams to have a lot more Cooper Cup on my rosters, but at the same time, that's not really the type of player. You go back and look at it, he was in his later 20s coming off a lot of really positive stuff, which was something that I, you know, did did emphasize in some of my more thorough looks at the whole league. And when I was looking at the Rams, talked about how I would definitely have him over Robert Woods. And I didn't understand how Robert Woods was going ahead of him. That was, that was the point that I made every time I talked about the Rams, but he had mostly stable numbers and then suddenly had this really impressive spike in target sprout run and efficiency, you know, yards per target and touchdown rate. And, And basically, I mean, we watched him. Obviously, he was great in all of those ways. He was just an incredible player. He was a great fit with Matthew Stafford. Maybe I didn't give enough credit to this possibility that the range was going to be wider because they had this new quarterback that could potentially influence. Mostly, I was looking back at it and saying, this is not really a player I probably would have landed on a whole lot. I, I guess the the lesson in there is that we know that we're not going to get everything right, but that's not an excuse I guess, to not have opinions and to go out and try to get exposure to every type of player other than, again, in in these massive best ball tournaments, if you're drafting several hundred teams, you still have to have leans. But I do understand why people are are mixing up their diversification in those types of formats. But specifically for redraft, say you're playing in 20 or fewer leagues. Most people are playing in one or two, but 20 or fewer, we'll say. I think a lot of our listeners are probably playing in five or seven or ten. You have that many teams. 
it's tough to get enough exposure to basically any pick. Like you said, getting all of these different ways of, of playing, you know, Jamar Chase or whatever last year would have been fantastic. If you only have, you know, say 10 teams, you draft him three times, you're way overweight on Jamar Chase. It's 30% of your, you know, of your, of your teams. And yet those three teams could have any number of issues. I was actually looking at some of my past teams last year and I had a team that had Debo on it, nailed it. I had Debo in a lot of spots, but my two quarterbacks were Justin Fields and Ryan Fitzpatrick. I started Ryan Fitzpatrick with one. He got hurt. Then I started Fields for a stretch and just kept telling myself that he, the, the, the rebound was coming and, and Fields had that stretch of horrible games. I got to like week five and I had something like 20 total quarterback points. It was just one of the most hilarious things that it's ever happened to me in fantasy football. This is a roster that hits on Debo Samuel in the middle rounds, but it also hit hit. Uh, it had a uh, Jerry Judy and Lavisca Chenault. I was just looking at this team. It had very; those were like my fifth and sixth round picks. It just had a lot of misses. Uh, Saquon and Darren Waller early. Darren Waller had an injury plague season. Saquon obviously gets hurt. Just tons and tons and tons of misses on this ro- roster. That's going to happen sometimes to your, your Jamar Chase teams or your Debo Samuel teams, right? And if you're only playing in ten leagues and you're, I mean, even if you're making a point to get this guy three times and you feel like that's really overweight. There's certainly a possible, I mean, the highest win rates we see in best ball are like 30%. I mean, there's a possibility, which, which says that more than half the teams that drafted that player, even as good as he was, didn't win. Right. And, and a lot of times that's because of poor structure and other elements, but there's a possibility that you're not winning any of the, the leagues with that player. And you're sitting there going, I wish I would have, had even more conviction and taking them in even more leagues. And that was something we were blessed with, with Debo, for example, last year, we had him in so many of our leagues, which was a very nice thing to have Debo Samuel and look at the other stuff that we had on all the other teams and figure out which one really had juice. But yeah, I mean, this idea of getting back to sort of the Cooper cup thing and it not really bugging me. I mean, I guess the point that I'm trying to drive home there. Maybe maybe it bugged me a little bit with the Cooper Cup thing, but se- several of other players. Fournette's a better example. I was never really going to take a whole lot of Fournette. Probably should have. There's elements of that that I that I probably regret it too. But you, ha- I mean, number one, you can win without any player, straight up. Like you don't have to have every single great player on on every roster. But number two, is just because we acknowledge we're not going to be right about everything, we could be wrong about some of these players. You were talking about these price ranges, and we're saying, okay, at this price range, this player has elements to his profile that I think are, you know, the upside is mostly all baked in, and there's not a lot of room for that player to beat price by a ton. That's probably what I would have said about Cooper Cup last year, and I was wrong. I had I had uh, no idea that he could do what he did, and and. I mean, that's an interesting element too, because like we're trying to identify upside and it can be very challenging to identify, but being willing to say that I don't know, and I could be wrong about this player or this player could be good. I mean, the one thing that I did write about Cooper cup that helped some people draft him was if one of these players separates Cooper cup or Robert Woods and is a star, it is going to be Cooper cup. That's what I felt very strongly about. Even though in my own mind, looking at the whole league, I didn't think he had as much upside as some of the other options, right? So I'm, I'm kind of saying this weirdly, but I made my own decision on Cooper Cup. And I was saying, I can sort of see it, but I don't think it's 
worth drafting at this price. And I didn't get a lot of Cooper Cup. Probably if he was a sixth round pick, I would have taken more. Like Debo, right? <laughs> Debo was an eighth round pick and we took a ton. But it's this, you know, combination of knowing that you're going to be wrong, but also not saying that as I'm not willing, I'm not willing to have opinions. I'm not willing to be wrong because the willingness to be wrong and accept that that's probably not a player that you were going to be on a ton is just sort of part of fantasy football. It's part of the chaos. It's part of, you just talked about how all these players have wine ranges. We have to make our determinations and our analysis and our calls, but then also live with those calls and not spend a whole bunch of time looking back and saying, you know, if only I had analyzed this player entirely differently, basically. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I've said that like three or four different ways. I'm not really articulating it the way that I would like to, but the main point I'm trying to drive home is just because we know, like it's not this idea of hubristic drafting is not saying that we don't think we can be wrong. It's very much acknowledging we can be wrong. And yet we're still willing to have opinions basically. And I think the, the deal with Cooper cup is that and any player that you're not on, I mean, if you were on Cooper Cup last year, but like you say, weren't on Leonard Fournette or weren't on Jamar Chase, you have to evaluate those situations separately and determine whether or not you were in or out for the right or wrong reasons. But if every time that you miss on a player, you then try and chase either that profile or all profiles in the subsequent season, then all you'll do is more damage to your overall draft process than if you stick with what you're doing that works. And so from that perspective, you want to make sure that you are on the guys that it makes sense to be on. And if somebody hits that it didn't make sense to be on, you just don't worry about it. That gets back to that whole idea of, I'm not going to add anything to my process that I don't think is right more than 50% of the time. You know, if it's just a coin flip, well, I mean, obviously related to breakout players, if it's, if it's right enough that it's hitting on, any breakouts, it could be notable, but this idea of pattern matching and trying to find the next version of the next player is, is typically, like you said, forgetting that there were other similar players that you would have viewed very similarly if you were playing that way and trying to analyze that player in a certain way that didn't hit and weren't good. And so now this change that you're making to try to find just the positive outcome from that certain type of whatever. I mean, Debo is the best example here. Everybody wants to find the next receiver that's going to have rushing value. And like, that's not going to happen. And just trying to identify all the receivers in the league that might have the most rushing yards is not going to land you Debo Samuel, right? Like that's not, Debo Samuel had eight rushing touchdowns last year. That's not the way that that's, you're not finding Debo Samuel that way. And if you were doing that last year, you would have probably also taken, you know, LaVisca Chenault or, or whoever else that you thought might have a bunch of rushing yards where you might have gone for Robert Woods above Cooper yeah, Cup. Above I mean, Cooper Cup. Debo Samuel is a talent play, not a let's figure out exactly how the workload manifests play. And when you get those things in the wrong direction, then you miss in the current year and then you continue to miss as you chase, which isn't to say that there aren't things that are elements that are dynamic and that drafts aren't evolving and one of the things that you know we'll discuss on a future show as we're you know we're over our kind of ideal platonic hour here is the way that that running back profiles and the profiles that are the least expensive to scoring potential and breakout potential evolve and if you're chasing 
the same things that you were chasing a couple of years ago, you may now be paying the wrong prices for some of these running backs. And so from an aggressiveness perspective, I think we're always being presented with new opportunities. We want to be forward-looking as much as we're backward-looking. You have to understand the past, and a lot of drafters still don't. That's one of the reasons why structure is so valuable. But you also have to look forward to the next exploitable opportunities and be aggressive in taking them. Because once the entire community has looked at them and said, okay, this is how you should play, then the advantage is either completely gone or not an advantage that you can deploy to win an extremely high percentage of leagues in that year. That's incredibly well said. We probably should wrap up. I think we'll come back to this topic later this week, as we've been doing at times recently, maybe talk about some more player-specific stuff, some players we are willing to take stands on whose profiles we do think relative to their price allow for a lot of upside and, and not as much downside or vice versa, right? Players that we might have a tier higher or a tier lower. That's sort of, it seems what we did at the end of our auction discussions as well. But you know what? We'll just keep talking about the biggest, most important players for 2022. Every time we do a player specific discussion, I think that makes sense. Well, it, it does. And, and especially if we're talking about being aggressive and talking about exploitable opportunities, we do get asked from time to time and we do want to cover all players that the listeners are interested in. So if you have some specific guys that you feel like we're not hitting on and could be sort of the fulcrum for the 2022 season, let us know. We will get into some of those guys. But the players that we are creating maximum exposure to we want to make sure we discuss the reasons for and then we'll either be right or wrong and, and you can party with us and, and spread the money around after the season or you can blame us for your season one that's that's the way these shows go so <laughs> we've we've really enjoyed this one ben thank you so much for doing this topic with me uh, that'll do it for this episode of stealing bananas i'm sean siegel with me as always is ben gretchen you can follow at yards per gretch Make sure you are subscribed to Stealing Signals and also don't miss the new Stealing Lines betting project that Ben has launched with Dalton Cates. You'll want to check that out as well. We'd love to have you over at Rotobiz. And if you want a 10% discount to your 2022 one-year subscription, please use the coupon code RVRADIO2022 at checkout. You will get that discount. Uh, Subscribe to the feed. We're going to have a lot of bonus shows over the next month. If you're not subscribed, you'll miss a few of those. Leave us a rating and review. We appreciate all you guys are doing there. We mentioned the extreme anchor RB draft that we really enjoyed today over at Underdog. And if you want to play Underdog with us, uh, if you think that our draft is not a perfect draft, Join up over there. You might hit the same draft with us and you can get your players at our expense. Use the code RotoViz. You'll get a 100% deposit match up to $100. Thank you guys so much. We'll talk to you soon. Shopify, were you wondering, where are my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, 
Sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen.